Hello, pod pals, and welcome to the very final season of Best Girl Grip. I am your host, Nicole Davis, and this is the podcast that navigates the film and television industry through the lens of the women doing just that. This week's guest is Laura Zempel, an award-winning editor for film and TV based in Los Angeles. I invited Laura to the podcast after binge-watching the series Beef on Netflix earlier this year and being really impressed with everything about that show, but particularly the editing and how it balances the modulating tone and storylines so deftly. Laura was nominated for an Emmy for her work on that show and not for the first time. She previously won for outstanding single camera picture editing for a drama series in Euphoria. She also worked on Josephine Decker's film The Sky Is Everywhere and the Duplass Brothers show Room 104. Most recently, she edited two episodes of the new Apple TV Plus series Lessons in Chemistry starring Brie Larson. The first three episodes are available to watch as of today. We talk about how she developed an interest in editing, her experience of internships and assisting, including etiquette and how to read a room, being obsessive with music and making playlists for her projects, editing an actor's performance, staying emotionally engaged with the work, Avid being her first language, and trusting the process. This is episode 130 of Best Girl Grip. It's just getting a sense of whether you have a specific moment, person or an experience made you consider a career in film or TV. I think for me, it started, it was in, it was in high school. I was working on a project for a class that I had. Our school had a closed circuit TV class where you could film football games or film like little sketches and news about, you know, dances coming up and whatnot. And so there was a class you could take where you could make those shorts And that was around the time I had to apply to college. And so I was in that class and I started, you know, bargaining with my classmates because I didn't like going out to film things. And so I would say, hey, if you go film the football game, like I'll edit all of your projects because I knew iMovie, I was really into computers. And so it just sort of naturally happened. And around that time, I had to start thinking about what college I wanted to go to, what I wanted to major in. And I just thought to myself, you know, maybe I can make a career out of this. I was always interested in filmmaking and, you know, watching movies with my parents and just sort of any chance I could get. And so I knew I wanted to do something in the creative field. And that was, that was kind of the moment where I thought, oh, maybe this is, this is what I could do with the rest of my life. How did you know iMovie? What piqued that curiosity? (laughs) (laughs) So my dad was very techie and I had a lot of interest in computers as well. And so in junior high, I had to do a project for National History Day. And one of the options we could do was we could do a documentary. So it was like an oral presentation, a poster board, or a documentary. And my dad had bought some video editing software and was like, oh, you know, you could make a documentary. And so I thought, okay, yeah, sure. So I did it on Gertrude Ederly, who was the first woman to swim the English Channel. And I found a PBS documentary about her. And I somehow copied it from the TV onto a VHS and then from the VHS imported it into this software and cut, took out all of their audio, cut it together, wrote voiceover myself, scored it to Tangerine Dream. And I made a little eight minute documentary that I submitted for National History Day. And I didn't win. I didn't advance to the next round, but I think it's because I don't know. It was either maybe an issue of rights or I honestly think they thought my dad did it because it was like pretty intricate. I spent a lot of time on it and they might have thought like, oh, this 13 year old girl couldn't possibly have done this herself. So I wish I could go back in time and figure out what happened just to to ask them, you know, why didn't you believe me? But I also did put star wipes and, you know, spin transitions, like anything the program had, I I thought this is really going to make it stand out. So that's amazing, though, and such a good, like homegrown way of cutting your teeth. It was so fun. It was just really it felt like I was playing, you know, it didn't feel like work, you know, like sometimes typing a paper feels like work or getting up the nerve to speak in front of a class. It was just like I could go home every day and, you know, play around. And it was really it was really, really fun. And then that became anytime I had to do a school project if making a video was an option, I would do that. And then as the software kept updating, I could, you know, adapt pretty quickly. And so it just sort of evolved from there. 
And you say when your friends were coming to you with graduation projects, you didn't like to go out to film. What was that an awareness of that you didn't like that part of? <laughs> I, boy, I didn't like anything about it. I didn't like lugging equipment around. I didn't like being in front of the camera because, you know, in high school, it was a lot of interviewing the football players or interviewing people, getting thoughts. And I just didn't want to be on camera. And I didn't. I didn't think I was very good at shooting. I felt I, because I would get in the edit room and I, the edit room, I'd sit at iMovie and I would cut it together and be like, oh, I should have gotten this shot or this doesn't work. And so I would sort of get in my head when I was trying to shoot stuff and it, it just didn't work. My skill set, my brain, it doesn't lend itself very well to being on set. And I, I still feel that way. I just always feel like I'm in the way if I'm on set. And so once you'd had that realization about where your skill set suited, how did you go about pursuing it? Did you start to apply to kind of college degrees or were you thinking that you would do an apprenticeship? Like how did that sort of career path start to formulate? So I went to film school at Chapman University and my freshman year, I went there thinking I would either be a screenwriter or an editor because I loved creative writing. And so I took both my freshman year to kind of you know narrow it down and so I was really really terrible at screenwriting because it's so different than creative writing you know you have to write for a visual medium it's completely different and so I was terrible at screenwriting and I wasn't bad at editing and I really clicked with my editing professors it was the same thing and so it was sort of decided for me early on that editing was the the right path and did that course give you like a sense of, okay, once you've graduated, this is how you start to get a job in the industry? Or were you kind of flung out there and having to make your own way? Sort of flung out there. I do think a lot of film schools don't really prepare you, especially in editorial. They teach you how to edit, but they don't really teach you how to get jobs. And so it's very difficult to graduate and know that you want to edit and you've cut short films, but most likely no one's going to hire you as an editor straight out of film school. So I was very lucky. I had an internship where I was able to basically sit behind an assistant editor all day and just ask him, what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? His name was Tyler Nelson. And he was, he was really wonderful and, you know, basically got my career off the ground. And he told me about this program called the America Cinema Editors Internship. And it's something that as a college graduate in Los Angeles, you can apply for, and they get a, you know, a bunch of applications, narrow it down to 10 people. And then they pick two every year. And those interns get to go to cutting rooms and sit behind assistant editors, meet editors, and they spend a week on each project. So I was lucky enough to do it when I graduated. So I spent a week on the TV show Supernatural, a week on the TV show The Good Wife, and a week on the featured Dinner for Schmucks. And I, it was the best because I actually got to sit in professional cutting rooms and see what an assistant editor does. And that's kind of what the program was geared towards, was it was teaching you what you need to know to be an assistant editor, because those are the jobs that you're most likely going to get out of school if you want to be an editor. And you need to learn almost a completely different skill set. So you need to learn media management, exports, how to do sound, also just how to in a cutting room, how it works, what the politics are. And so that experience was invaluable. It was like a second school, basically. I definitely want to pin that and get into some of the more nitty gritty about, you know, how you are a good assistant. But what struck me there was that you said you were lucky to get that internship. But in terms of the stats, you must have done something incredible with your application. You know, do you remember anything that you felt like made it stand out? I think a big thing that people don't really realize with editorial is they think it's really technical. And it is, it is, especially for assistants, but there's a big part of it that's you know, you're trapped in a room with a very small team for really long hours. So you're around the same people for 10 hours a day. And I think I went into my interview and I I kept it pretty light. I, you know, I would joke around. I knew everyone that interviewed me. I researched them. I knew what they had cut. I, you know, I had to write an essay and I think my essay, it was good enough, but I think it was really the interview that solidified it because I was, I was grateful. I, you know, thanked them for considering me. I was just trying to be, I mean, I was really overwhelmed and genuinely grateful to be there. But, you know, I, I had come prepared. I was trying to make a good impression of just me as a person and trying to, you know, make jokes, treat them like people. And I, it was just like, it was a really pleasant experience. It was very intimidating at first, but during the interview, I was like, oh, I, I you know, at leaving, I, I thought to myself, oh, I think that went well. So I think just, being someone that's easy to be around goes a long way in the editorial world. And it's often overlooked because it's it's so much like, who do I want to have lunch with every day, day in and day out, and be in a room with for 10 hours? I'm so glad you brought up the difference between assistant editing and editing, because I think it must be quite a difficult job to do well in the sense that you are, you know, helping someone kind of do their job and you're sort of wanting maybe to remain a bit invisible and, and just sort of, you know, 
give them the tools that they need to do their job. But at the same time, you're trying to absorb and you're trying to learn and you're trying to ask lots of questions. How do you strike that balance between impressing but not being annoying? Oh my gosh, it's so hard. And it gets better with experience. So I think I think for me, I was an assistant editor for about six years. And so I I learned a lot. I was very lucky. My first editor I assisted with, his name was Louis Chaffee, and he and I did a, a non-union feature together, and it was just the two of us. And so I remember in our interview, he told me, like, if you have questions, you're going to ask me, right? You're not going to just make guesses. You're going to you're going to ask me. And I said, okay, are you sure you want me to? Because it's that same thing. It's that balance of, I don't want to ask my editor too many questions because then maybe he, he will second guess me or think I'm stupid. But he said, no, you know, you're, you're young, you don't have a lot of experience and I just wanna make sure it's done right. So please ask me questions, I'm giving you permission. And so that actually, that was the most helpful thing because then I felt, I felt comfortable asking him questions and I could ask him even, you know, political questions where, hey, when the director's in the room, do you want me to speak up if they ask for notes or do you want me to stay quiet? And he was really honest and, you know, every editor works a little differently. So I think as an assistant, you have to be very adaptable. That's something that I learned. And I actually think it's really okay to ask questions like that to your editor. How do you want me to enter a room? Do you want me to knock and then open the door? Do you want me to just open the door? Do you want me to text you? Do you, you know, there's just like everyone has their own things. Um, so there's, there's that. It's also, it's just, I think one of the best tools that you can have as an assistant is being able to read a room. Like if you can, if you can kind of understand the dynamic without having to speak or ask that question, that'll go a long way. If you can just sort of interpret tensions or whatever. And I think having a close relationship with your editor, like I used to I would like to get there before my editor, check in with my editor in the morning before they start working, just to kind of ask like, hey, what's going on today? What do you need from me? So then I can prepare myself. And then at the end of the day, check in. How did today go? What do you need tomorrow? What's tomorrow going to look like? What time will you be in? So I think there's a lot of personality and temperament management that goes into being an assistant as well. Honestly, a lot of a lot of being an assistant is that. And now on the other side, as an editor, I, I really try to talk to my assistants and, you know, I'll tell them sometimes too, I'll come in and I'll be like, Hey, just letting you know, like I'm in a, I'm in a bad mood or I feel really tired today. And so if I seem off, it's not you or whatever, or like, you know, I've got, I've got plans tonight. So we got to get this cut out and can you do this? Can you do that? So I think just trying to keep an open dialogue and having that trust is really important, but you know, it's something that you have to, you have to build. And as an assistant, you have to build that. You have to show that you're dependable, show that you're reliable, show that you listen and can take notes and write things down and, and that sort of thing. And when you, you say you spent six years in a, as an assistant editor, were those jobs kind of coming through word of mouth? You know, once you'd done a couple people then recommending you on, or were you having to kind of constantly hustle to find the next thing? It was, it's really word of mouth. That was one of the great things about that internship that I did was it, the other part of the internship is they do a lecture series. So everyone that applies for the internship can come to this lecture series. And it's, it's a few days. I can't remember exactly how many, but they do panels with editors, with assistant editors, with, you know, different formats of features versus TV. And they really try to give you a broad view of how the industry works. And so going to those lecture series, I met a lot of the other applicants for the ACE internship. I met a lot of people who were just starting out on their career journey. And so I made friends with those people. And I think meeting people that are at the same point in your career is really beneficial because those are the people who are going to be applying for the jobs that you want. So all of my early jobs came from friends who were, you know, we all wanted to be editors, but we weren't there yet. So the way the union works in Los Angeles is, you have to work for 100 days as an assistant editor on a non-union project, and then you can qualify for the union. So the first step is to get your days. And so I was talking to friends who were applying for reality shows because that was the very easy and standard way to get your days. And so a friend applied to something, got hired on something else, but then the other job got back to him and he said, oh, I, I'm booked, but you know, I should interview my friend Laura. And so then that became sort of my mentality is anytime I got hit up for a job, if I couldn't take it, I would refer a friend. So then they would have work. And then when the time came around, when I was looking for work, hopefully they would refer me. And it, you know, it all, it all worked really easily. And it was a great way to maintain relationships with those people as well. Yeah, absolutely. And not getting into that competitive mindset, like there are only so many jobs. Was there a sense, you know, you know, within that six years of, okay, now I'm ready to take the next step? And if so, how did you go about manifesting that kind of transition upwards? I, yeah, there, there really was. I remember I was working, 
I second guess myself a lot and I was an assistant and I, I thought I was not a very good assistant for a long time just because I'm, I'm not the most technical and there certainly were way better assistants than me out there. But as I did it and did it more and more, I could tell that I was, you know, getting more senior in cutting rooms and on TV where, you know, people were asking me questions and I knew how to handle things. And I remember I was working on a show that I didn't really care for. The subject matter wasn't really what I was interested in. And it was kind of around that point where I thought to myself, okay, I should really start trying to take editing jobs or figure out how I'm going to get there. And I told myself that on that job, like, I'm not going to assist on shows that I wouldn't want to cut on anymore because, you know, it's a one way to move up is to be on a TV show and you do season one as an assistant. And then if one of the editors doesn't come back for season two, maybe they can promote from within and one of the assistants can become an editor. On that job, I thought, you know, I wouldn't even want to cut this show. I don't, it's just not what I'm interested in. And then I got a call from some producers I had worked with before, and they told me they had a show coming up and they wanted me to be an assistant. Uh, it was for Room 104, and it was 12 episodes, half hour, half hour long anthology. So, you know, different director, different script, completely different cast every episode. And they said, We're doing 12 episodes. We want you to be the only assistant. So you'll assist on all 12. But if you come, we'll give you an episode to cut because one of the editors had a, a feature that he had to finish for a few weeks. And so in that time slot, they were going to bump me up. And that job paid significantly less than the job that I was on, that I was unhappy on. But I knew I was like, I like these people. The show sounds interesting and they're going to give me an opportunity to cut. And so that was that show was really eye-opening because I knew that I could handle being the only assistant on 12 episodes. So in that sense, it was intimidating on that level. But by then I had had enough experience as an assistant where I thought, okay, I can do this. I can run a cutting room. And then having the opportunity to cut was also very daunting, but it ended up being, it was a, it was an incredible opportunity and, you know, it presented itself. So I felt like I had to jump and I was really fortunate to work with really supportive people. And it was so, it ended up being great. And then when seasons two and three came back, I started as an assistant and then I moved up to editor and, you know, that was the last show I ever assisted on. So it all worked out. That must have been such a great training ground for you because you're essentially working on like several projects at once that are all, I guess, shifting in kind of tone or genre or intention. That's what we said working on that show. We were like, this is basically film school. Like we're all back in film school where they shot those episodes in about three days. We, it was just, it was, it moved so fast and it was a constant mix of interesting people coming into the cutting room. We met so many directors uh, it's actually how I ended up working. My first feature was with a director that did an episode of Room 104 that I, you know, cut her episode and we got along. And so she brought me onto that. So it was, it was just sort of like this fun little gorilla show. And yeah, it was the best. It was the, it was like the best boot camp sort of for becoming an editor. I love that the Duplass brothers have like maintain that spirit throughout their career you know they haven't ever you know they've graduated onto bigger scale things but they have really kept that mentality and their type of filmmaking it's yeah amazing to see and something you mentioned there I want to kind of interrogate is that you said you're not the most technical editor what does that mean in your you know understanding of the word technical and also you know how do you perceive yourself as making up for that lack it might not be a lack but you know what I mean like sometimes I watch music videos or something and I see all of these like flashy cuts or like push-ins, pull-outs and zooms and, you know, things where maybe they're being done on set or maybe they're being done in editorial, but like speed ramps and like flashy edits for flashy sake. I'm not, that's not really my skill set. I, I just like never really learned how to do it. I kind of don't know where to start. I'm always very intimidated. I'm always afraid someone's going to hire me on something and ask me to do that type of editing. I'm sure I could figure it out, but it's definitely not what I'm versed in. But I think I make up for it in other ways. Like I think I'm really good at eking emotion and subtlety and nuance and like mining for little moments of vulnerability and intimacy. And I also am very kind of obsessive with music. And so I'm really... I get really deep into the nitty gritty. You know, I make playlists for almost everything that I work on, just either inspiration or songs that could work in it. And I keep like a very wide perspective on what the show is going to be, what I feel like it's wanting from me. And I try to, I try to listen to that. And I think I'm pretty good at keeping, I think I'm really good at listening to the footage, you know, and finding kind of what the footage is asking for musically or cutting wise. Cause you know, sometimes you watch the dailies, the raw footage and you, you can tell, okay, this needs to be jump cut or this moment really needs to be long and fluid. And I don't want to interrupt the camera mood or whatever. So I think, I think I'm, I think I'm much better at that than, you know, forcing a heavy hand. 
you mentioned there that if you were asked to do something, you would be able to like figure it out. I'm wondering like where you would go to do that. Is it just the internet that you're doing, like that you're going to when you want to research something or like what do you do to to keep improving and to challenge yourself and to learn new skills? Oh my gosh, it's such a good question. I, well, this is again, my network. I have a, I have so many friends who do so many different types of projects. So I think the first thing I would do is Think of anyone I know who does something like that, call them up, ask them how they do it. See if I could come visit them at their cutting room, maybe have them show me what tools they use. That would be step one. Step two is definitely YouTube. I I don't know what I was doing in college. I didn't realize tutorials were on YouTube. I feel like YouTube was kind of starting to take off when I was in college. But the second I figured out that there were tutorials on YouTube, it like was a total game changer. And I still, I'm always on YouTube and in forums, like trying to troubleshoot. So I feel like between those two things, I could definitely figure it out. And also, I mean, if I had enough time, I think I could poke around on the software and and, and probably figure it out because I, I do sort of like to get into the nitty gritty and learning something new is always, it's always something that I'm looking for on a project. So if I see an editor I'm working with doing something like that, I'll ask them, hey, how'd you do that? Can I watch you? Can you show me how to do that? And um, I think that's one of the best parts of the job is, is uh, the opportunity to learn a new skill on every project. Absolutely. Are there any editors whose careers you aspire to or you think, you know, I want my editing style to be like theirs in however many years? There are so many and there's so many talented editors. I think it's for me, uh, Julio Perez, who's our supervising editor on Euphoria. He's really got a great career and he's become sort of a definitely a mentor to me where he he does features and he does TV, which I think is something that I really want to do. It's very easy to get pigeonholed and I tend to gravitate towards TV and I really love TV, but I do also want to have the ability to do features. And Julio does a really great way of going back and forth between both. Like he's done It Follows, he's did Under the Silver Lake. Aside from that, he's also just a really wonderful editor. He's really thoughtful in how he cuts. He really tries to do something different. He wants to do something unexpected, but not something that takes away from the viewer's experience in watching the show. So his choices make an impact, but they aren't flashy necessarily. He can be flashy, but the thing that I really admire in his work is, is how he makes unexpected choices that actually enrich scenes. So whether it's holding on a character's face for a little too long or putting in music that feels like counterintuitive to the scene but it actually in a way elevates the tension or brings you into the emotion because it doesn't seem like the obvious choice like I think I think editors who can do that are really inspiring is that what you mean by a thoughtful cut it's something that's like not obvious and it's like really finding the language and the thing itself yeah I think so because you know it's very sort of standard filmmaking is you know, start in the wide shot, then move to the medium and then move to the close. And so something like that, or when people are talking, always having whoever's speaking on camera. And I think, you know, that's, that's definitely a way to cut. And a lot of times that's what you end up doing just because it's the best way to convey the scene. But I think when you can either start on a, a tight shot of someone and then pop wide, it keeps the audience engaged where it keeps your, your edits, your, feature or show kind of unpredictable and I think it keeps the audience interested so that's that's kind of what I mean by not an obvious standard traditional kind of assembly. Is there a credit that comes to mind where you started kind of flexing that flair a bit more? Euphoria was really wonderful for that because we we're encouraged to make that show cinematic. I mean, we follow Julio's lead. He sort of set the tone for that show. He cut the pilot. He serves as our supervising editor. So he watches all of our scenes before we send them to Sam Levinson, our showrunner. So we were very collaborative editorial room. And I always am trying to impress Julio. I'm trying to, I want him to like my first cuts. And so I think in season one, you know, the scene with Rue and Jules taking photos in the bedroom, it's sort of this, this montage of these little moments of intimacy. And I, they shot so much footage and it was also fun and the girls are so great, but, you know, cutting it down, finding the song that's in there, that's, you know, one of the songs that I love. And it just, it it became this really tender scene that they gave they gave great feedback on. And that was really where I was like, okay, I can do this. I can fit my style in here. And, you know, it starts, it starts a little flashier and then they get on the bed and we really hold on Rue for a long time. And I remember I fought it. I fought it for a while 
I was like, I don't have anything to cut to. I need to cut to Jules. I need to see this. And Julio's like, no, just hang on her face. Like we're watching her. She's having the, the thought. And as the VO is going, and it's so much more interesting to stay on her. So I did. And I think that's really when I learned to kind of trust the footage and listen to it. And, you know, it's okay to hold on someone for something. At times it feels a little too long, but if it's getting the emotion across, then it, it works. <laughs> Absolutely. I'd like to segue a little bit more. I mean, we are talking about the job itself, but I'd love to get a sense of the steps into getting the job itself. What is the interview process like for an editing gig? Is it, you know, sitting across from a supervising editor or the showrunner and trying to get a sense of what the show is that they want to make and whether you're going to like fit well within that fabric? Absolutely. Yeah, that's basically it. So with Euphoria, I interviewed with Julio. We went to a coffee shop and I mean, we ended up speaking for about two hours, mostly about music. We a Mazzy Star song came on in the in the coffee shop and we started talking about that. And then that led to other things. And then on, I feel like most shows, it's a combination of things. It's talking about the script. I'm trying to get inside the creator's head of, okay, how do you envision this? What styles are you thinking? What are your references? What music are you thinking when you hear these things? Do you have a composer in mind? Because that's actually really helpful for me to kind of understand tone. And then I think I'm trying to get a sense of, can I do this? How can I do this? Because I see my job as trying to give the creators the best version of the show that they are trying to make, rather than trying to infuse my style on it. Like my job is basically to be invisible. And so I, I'm trying to make sure that I can align with them and that our communication is good and clear and that I like talking to them that you know we get along because I'm going to be working with them for long stretches of time so that's really what I'm I'm thinking of when I go into these jobs and I'm also trying to just present myself I try not to give too many notes if I if there's something in the script that I don't like I don't bring it up right away I try to I want to present myself as an advocate as an ally that let them know I'm on their team and that's sort of why I ask so many questions just so that I can I can help better understand what they're trying to do and then think of ways that I can help elevate it. And so I want them to feel like I am on their team, like right from the beginning. When you when you talk about, you know, whether or not I can do this, what kind of questions are you asking to like figure out what is going to be required of you and what about the show or the project might need kind of pruning or preserving and, and that you actually have the the toolkit to be able to deliver? Sometimes I'll read a script and I'll know like oh, if there's like a musical sequence or a dance number or like on the show I just worked on Beef, there was a basketball scene. And I was like, oh, you know, sometimes you read a script and you're like, oh, God, this is going to be tough to cut. How are they going to shoot this? So I'll, I'll ask, I'll say, how are you shooting this? Is this going to be choreographed? Is it going to be improv? Like um, how many cameras are you guys shooting with? Just so I can also just so I can understand a, how much time I have to cut something like that and how it's going to be structured because every director, every DP, everybody is different. Some people spend a ton of time prepping. Other people are a little more fly by the seat of their pants. And, you know, it just, I'm trying to also protect my ability to do a good job. And so whether that's, I'm going to need more time, or maybe we should bring on a second editor, or are you cool with my assistant cutting with me? And can we get them a co-editor or additional editor credit? It's things like that. Like I'm trying, I'm trying to protect myself and also protect their vision. So that's something I'm always on the lookout for when I'm reading a script. Speaking of prep, is there anything that you can do to prepare? Or is it just about being confronted by the rushes when, when and as you get them? And there's nothing really you can do to kind of, you know, get yourself ahead of the game, so to speak. There are certain things that you can do to prep. You can, like for me in the interview, I do always ask about music. Music's a big one for me because if they know, like I love Michael Levi's score. I love Johnny Greenwood. I love Thomas Newman. Like if they have sort of references, I'll start listening to those and I'll bring in, like I have a, I have a hard drive that has a ton of sound effects, a ton of film scores. So I'll start importing those into the Avid before I even start working on it, or I'll start listening. I'll make a Spotify playlist of just, you know, certain time periods. Like I, I did a show that was set in the early fifties. And so I started building a playlist of, okay, what would this character listen to? What are some fun songs that I can put in montages? Like I knew they wanted it to be a pretty jazz heavy show. So I was just sort of trying to listen to that kind of music on in my day-to-day -day life. So when I'm driving around, when I'm going on walks, whatever, just so I can kind of start thinking what's going to fit, what's going to help elevate the show. Because when you get the, with the dailies, it's, you just got to figure it out. There's no way to really prepare for that. Like I wish there was, but 
you just kind of get hit with the footage, but doing the, the little prep beforehand does help, like knowing what sort of music's gonna work. You can import sound effects, like I'll, I'll build a project or I'll have my assistant build a project and just import sound effects that we're gonna need. So, you know, if there's a lot of car sounds, um, phones, like iPhones, whatever, there's just having that in the Avid ready to go is so much, so much easier than, you know, trying to hunt and find it once I'm starting to cut. I love the idea though of absorbing the music and like the soundscape of the world beforehand. So you almost like know the tempo of the world before you start putting it together and arranging it. I think that's really clever. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it doesn't always work. Like often I'll pull songs thinking, oh, this is going to be great for this. And then I get the footage and it's like, oh, absolutely not. That's like way too slow, way too fast, or just totally the wrong tone. But just having something that I can pull from is really helpful because yeah, I'll often I'll cut a scene and I'll know like, okay, this needs, this needs a song. What song am I going to put in? And I can't come up with it right away, but I'll scroll through the playlist. Oh, what about that? Oh, what about that? And so it it does save me time. And on a more micro level, when you're working on a scene, what is your steer? Are you kind of constantly coming back to the script and looking at where it sits in the context of the wider piece? Are you going on director's notes? How are you figuring out how the scene should feel and therefore how you should be cutting it? I will read the script. I have the script up most of the time while I'm cutting and I'll read the script supervisor's notes and sometimes they'll make notes in there like you know director prefers this or director likes this or you know we went away from this so don't use that and that's helpful because then I can kind of jump into the mindset that they discovered on set rather than having to figure it out for myself but I'll still watch everything and I'll use that kind of as a guide going in so I know what I'm looking for or kind of what the intention is and then hopefully that works out but if not I you know, I have to just work with what's there. So if like a camera move or something is missing something, I I got to come up with some way to put it together that makes sense. But I always do start with the script and kind of what feels like the intention is from set. And, you know, you, you get a sense of it while you're watching dailies. You can also hear, I like when I can hear the director on set directing the actors or talking to the crew, because I actually find that really helpful for me just to understand what they're going for. And then I think, once I know that, then I can start to tailor what I'm, you know, pulling for selects or what takes and moments I'm using to then build the scene from when I know either what they want or what's speaking to me or what's in the script. But like finding the kind of central focus of a scene and then building out from there is usually what I do. And then, you know, it's a whole process of refining. So I'll start on a micro level with a scene and get that scene in order. And then once all the scenes come together and watch the thing as a whole, you realize, oh, the scene does not need to be this long, or I don't need to spend all of this time on this one moment because it's in the scene preceding or after, or, oh, you know, I didn't realize this comes after this other scene where she's really frazzled. So she seems way too calm. I need to make the takes where she's a little more upset. But I do, I'll usually read the scene before the scene I'm cutting and the scene after, just so I can have a sense of where everyone's supposed to be emotionally as I'm putting it together. Amazing. Thank you for that answer. The thing that's always fascinated me about editing is how much control, and maybe that's the wrong word, but how important you are to what we see on screen in terms of an actor's performance. And, you know, you said there in terms of like the emotional levels, you know, if she's a bit more frazzled in one scene, it doesn't make sense that she's calm. But maybe that take where she's calm, it was the best performance she's ever given in her life. But it just doesn't make sense. Can you talk me through, you know, how you're making the selections that you are in terms of performance and, you know, what makes one take better than another from your perspective? It's so tricky. I mean, it's so different in everything, but I do think... You can feel it. You can feel when something really clicks. And it's usually, it's something that the actor is bringing. But the moment it really sings is when whatever the actor is doing really sings with what the camera is doing. Or when everything clicks into place, when like the emotion is then carrying the camera movement or the shot size or whatever, and you really feel it. And you can feel it even in the dailies. And I I have the habit of, I use Avid predominantly when I'm cutting. And I'll put markers or locators on those moments as I'm watching I have one color cyan is my color so as I'm watching if I really feel something I'll I'll make a note and so then when I go to assemble the scene I see where all my cyan markers are and I kind of build out from there or depending on the scene I'll pull selects into a timeline and then build out from there but I think finding those moments in the dailies and then preserving them and building around them is really important. And if there is something that the old saying, like, kill your darlings is, is very true. And it's, it's very hard when you have those moments where like, oh my God, but their performance is so good, or this camera move is so good. But once you, 
once you get the whole episode or feature in shape, you have to look at those moments. And, you know, sometimes it's the best performance or it's, the, it's often like the funniest joke. It's something the actor did that really makes you laugh, but it just doesn't fit the tone and you have to get rid of it. And it's painful, but I'll usually, to be honest, I'll usually leave it in for my first cut if it's really great and see if I can make it work. See if there's some way I can shape around it or calibrate the scene or the scenes around it to make it work if it really feels important. But then if it doesn't work, we'll take it out. And I'll, you know, I'll usually say, oh, goodbye. I have to say goodbye to you. Or if it's the directors in the room with me, we'll say goodbye together. And just to kind of give it, give it the moment that it deserves, knowing that it's going to have to come out at some point. I love that image though of yeah the alchemy and like the performance you know moving in tandem with the camera movement and and the editing therefore has to be in service of whatever that is you know and not the other thing that's maybe happening in the background. Yeah absolutely I mean a lot of the times with editing when you have wonderful performances it's your job is to just stay out of the way like let the actors have that moment and that's kind of what I was talking about earlier with you know not over editing not cutting to a reaction shot just because you feel like you should if the if the character's the actor is really emoting and that is is luring the audience in you have to preserve that and you have to stick with it it's funny to me that you studied screenwriting alongside editing because I feel like the thing that those two have in common is that you are subject to lots of notes and people having an, an opinion on you know what it should look and what it should feel like and you then having to you know judge how and if you respond to those opinions what is the note giving process like in the edit how many people are feeding back and how are you adjudicating essentially the way it typically works is, so I'll do my editor's cut. I send that to the director. The director's the only person that sees my editor's cut. And then they give me notes. I work with them for a certain amount of time, depending on if it's a feature or a TV show. So that part's nice because I'm only getting one person's notes. And so I'm really shaping it to what they want it to be so they can present their vision. It then goes to producers who, you know, in theory have been on since the beginning and read the script and were on set. So they have their own ideas in their head. And so then we do those. And then it goes to the studio network. and they're a little more removed from the process. So basically it's a long process of notes, but thankfully it is sort of structured. So I'm not getting everyone's notes all at once right away because that would be very overwhelming. But it seems like most notes come through email these days. So I'll usually get the email. I'll read them aside from director's notes. Those are usually in person, but I'll, I'll read them with my director or whoever my collaborator is. And we go through them and we talk about them like, okay, so -so so-and-so says this, do we want to do that? Yes, no, here's why. And Often the best thing to do is to try it, even if you disagree with it, to try it, because it does mean that something something is not working in that section for this person. And so even by just exploring the note, sometimes you find something else that isn't exactly what their note says, but it's something else happening around that area. So just sometimes by picking at it a little bit, something else will reveal itself, and then that will help you get where you need to go or solve whatever the problem might have been. So I do find that it's worth doing all of the notes, even if we don't agree with them. And then we can say, hey, we tried it. It doesn't work. Here's why. And a lot of times I feel like I'm, as the editor, I'm usually a few steps ahead of everyone because I know the footage and I remember cutting it. And I remember thinking, yeah, I would love to be able to do that, but we don't have the footage to support it. Or that's totally not going to work because of X, Y, Z. But no one else has that knowledge just trapped in their head like I do. So I have to go through the motion so that they can see it because until they see it, they will think that it's going to work. And the only way to dispel that notion is to show it to them most of the time. So the notes process is very challenging. It can be very draining, but I do also think it can unlock a lot of things that I couldn't see myself because I was so buried in the footage. So it's kind of a love-hate relationship with the notes process, but I do find it often makes the final product better yeah absolutely I'm wondering what a helpful note looks or sounds like to you a note that you're like yes I know exactly what you mean I know how to do that in a weird way I kind of like the more vague notes where it's like I don't feel x in this scene and I want to or this seems like the scene where she's overcome with grief but I don't feel like the grief is coming across and so I like notes where I can kind of experiment within the framework of the note rather than can we hold on this for two more seconds can we cut to the wide instead for this line because those are just they're really quote-unquote easy to do in a way they're sort of nice because then you can cross them off and you feel like you're doing notes but at the same time they're not really challenging and so scenes scenes that sort of I like notes that push the emotion that are more about character more about emotion I like those notes Mm. and that trust you I guess to find the solution 
Yeah. Or, you know, having the freedom to come up with different ideas, different interpretations. Speaking of different ideas and different interpretations, what do you do if something just simply isn't working and you just need to kind of hit reset and find inspiration somewhere? It's kind of twofold. Finding inspiration somewhere, I will go for a walk. I got to get away from my desk. If something is like really not working or I really can't see something or I can't figure something out. If I can put, I had a professor in film school who said this was like, if you can put it on the shelf for a day and come back to it, that will help you a lot. And a lot of times we don't have the time, the luxury of time, but I will sometimes just taking a walk is me putting it on the shelf. And I kind of say say that to myself, like, okay, I'm going to put this on the shelf. I'm going to go walk around the block. I'm going to come back, watch it with fresh eyes and see how I feel. Cause that usually will work. I will come up with something when I'm away from my desk. But the best thing really for me is to work on something and get it to a pretty good place. This is like in the editor's cut phase when I'm alone, shut down my machine, go to bed, come back the next day and watch it. Cause I'm always better. I can see it in the timeline. I can watch it cut together and be like, Oh, that's so stupid. I just need to, you know, I should be on her for this line. I should play this off of her face. Definitely don't start in the wide or that camera move doesn't work. So don't use it. I can just see it a little bit clearer if I have some distance from it. So if I have, if I can find a way to do that, that always helps. But if I'm, if I don't have that luxury or if some scene is just not working, I'll break it out of the full cut. I'll put it in a separate timeline and just so I'm not messing up everything around it. And I'll just sometimes start from scratch, just kind of reassemble it, lose the takes, just genuinely start from scratch and recutting it. It takes a while, but if it's, if it's a really problematic scene, sometimes that's the only way to go about it. It almost seems like the opposite end of the spectrum, you know, in the sense that in that scenario, you need physical distance in order to find a solution. But I also think as you were talking about sort of, you love editing that, pushes the emotion and therefore in order to achieve that you kind of need to stay emotionally keyed in to every single scene which I imagine must be hard when you're watching things over and over and you become a bit numb to whatever it is that it's trying to tell you how do you stay engaged with what you're editing I think I do a lot just sort of in general is I sort of intellectualize emotion and I don't it's like the chicken and the egg I don't know if that's what makes me a good editor or like was I drawn to this because I am this way or am I this way because I'm good at this but I think it's it's a twofold skill set of you have to be logical and you almost have to be robotic about the structure and the choices that you're making. But then at the same time, understand like this shot to this shot equals this emotion, this plus that equals this. And so there's kind of like the technical brain that I have when I'm assembling. And then when I sit back to watch a full cut down, I have to check, I like have to switch that part off. And I'll sit back with my notepad and I will try to sit in a different chair or move away from my desk just to not like, it's almost like having two hats where you have like your editor hat and your viewer hat. And so when it's time to put on the viewer hat, I try to sit somewhere else. I have my notepad and I'm just, I'm still kind of logically making notes of like, I don't buy this or, you know, I got to recut this or just something's not right in here. But I think watching something over and over again at a certain sense, you have to trust what you felt the first time of knowing like, okay, I've seen this a zillion times, but it it worked before. I think it's still working. And honestly, another thing that we do a lot is I'll have someone else watch. I'll have my assistant come in. I'll try to get someone who's a little fresher to get their opinion. I'm just like, how do you feel? Did you cry? <laughs> um, and I think having fresh eyes helps a lot. And even if they don't say anything, I can almost... I can watch someone watch something and kind of know how they're feeling. I can know what's working. I can know what's dragging. So bringing other people into the room is really helpful. And that's also kind of one of the benefits of working in TV is you have a little bit more, you have a bigger team and having other editors around to shed light on something like that is, I find that really helpful when I get stuck in something. But yeah, you really do. You watch it so often. Like I know every breath basically of every episode just because I've seen it so many times and, you know, I know the rhythm. It's like internal. I imagine you could probably be blindfolded and listening to someone watching a show and be able to tell where they are in that show. Absolutely. Totally. It's so weird. Like sometimes I'll see something that I cut ages ago and I'll still remember the line readings. I'll remember the cuts. I'll remember because it becomes it becomes like a rhythm almost where you're in sync with the footage. Like I remember that first editor that I assisted for, he said something where I was like, you end up breathing with the characters while you're cutting. 
And it's because you really have to get into their mindset. So I think a lot of the times when I'm first assembling, I'm really trying to empathize with the emotions and the takes and building from there. And so I think spending so much time in the early phases does help when I get further back because I know that I've chosen the performances that that have that pull, that have that draw. So I think it's it's a combination of trusting your first instincts and trying to be open to other people's interpretations as cuts evolve. Because, you know, sometimes you change a scene beforehand and that has an impact on a later scene. So that's sort of the logical brain of, okay, why isn't the scene working anymore? Well, you know, we changed this other thing up here. So you have to keep it all in your head as a whole. It's a, it's a, it's a very weird job. It's very weird. <laughs> you referenced earlier that you just worked on your first feature. Well, not just, but a few years ago, um, Josephine Decker's The Sky's Everywhere, if I'm not mistaken. And I'm wondering what that learning curve was like having cut your teeth on TV, you know, whether it felt markedly different working on a feature, you know, in any respect, really. It was so different. It was so, so, so different. It was, it was a great challenge and I'm so glad that I did it. And I'm so glad Josephine brought me on. I think the biggest change was we we were editing during the pandemic, you know, before vaccines were around. And so we, it was me, Josephine, my assistant, Lily Wild, who was wonderful. And it was really just the three of us. And we were wearing masks all day and we got so so sort of enmeshed with the footage we became so close with it like you the real difference with features and tv is you get so much more time in features and you're just looking at the same thing over and over again and i think being able to keep that perspective like you were asking about it's a lot for me it's a lot harder on features because just the length of the show is so much longer so it's more to to balance and keep in mind when you're making changes so that was definitely a challenge was having to sit down and watch the episode as a whole or the the sh- the movie as a whole so many times you know we would have times where we would watch it down three times a week sometimes twice a day and just to keep track of like the emotional the emotional roller coaster of the film and what was working what wasn't working and how things changed based on what we had changed in different parts of the film so just like the the calibration of the film as a whole was so much more different than in TV. Because in TV, you are responsible for a very small part, especially as an editor. Most TV shows have three editors and each editor has two or three episodes that they're responsible for. So it's nice to watch the other editor's episodes and think of like, how does this fit into this series as a whole? But it's usually written to be kind of sectioned off. So you have to worry about your episode's arc. And that's kind of it. It's a little more, it's it's broken down a little more for you. Whereas making a feature, you know, it's, it's also just a lot of responsibility because it's just all you, like as the editor, you have to make all of the choices. You have to find all of the moments that work or don't work and how they feed off of one another. And it's, it's really challenging, but it's also fun to have that much more time with the footage to explore, to mind for those moments. And then it feels even better when you find something, when you, when you have a breakthrough, it's, it feels amazing. It must have been so much more intensified for that project, though, where it's about a teenager, so their moods like fluctuate anyway, and a teenager that's grieving. So it's like, yeah, a lot of calibration as to the emotions. It was so much. Yeah, it was so much. Teenage girls, uh, teenage girls are really tough to do, but they're actually my favorites. But because they have like, they're just full of emotions and they don't know where to put it and they're making bad decisions, but you still have to empathize with them. Like it's such, it's such fertile ground for storytelling and coming of age stories. So it was, it was really challenging, but it was also really, really fun. Absolutely. And speaking of teenagers, I want to talk a little bit about Euphoria and, you know, particularly the episode that you won an Emmy for, which is season two, episode seven. It was an Emmy for outstanding single camera picture editing for a drama series. I'm wondering if you can talk about some of the choices that you made in that edit that you think set it apart and, you know, made it awards worthy, if you can speak to that. That episode is so tricky because it was, from Lexi's perspective, it was the first episode that broke from Rue. Rue, played by Zendaya, she narrates the seasons. So she is, she's the one who's giving BO. Everything is kind of from her point of view or her commentary is telling the audience sort of how to feel or what to think. And in in season two, episode seven, it switches to Lexi. So it's this person we've never heard the internal monologue from before. So that was actually a huge challenge was making that episode feel like it was coming from Lexi's point of view. And so one thing, the, on Euphoria, we work very collaboratively. And so I, 
it was wonderful on that episode because all of our editors worked on it. So it was me, Julio Perez, Aaron Butler, Nicola Boyanov. We all had a hand in shaping that episode. And I think because it was so sprawling and it had so many different storylines going on, it was really nice to have everybody's kind of flavor on that episode. So that was one thing that really set it apart. But the thing that I think we discovered in editorial was we had to make the episode feel like Lexi. So in a way we had to differentiate it from all of the episodes that we had done before. And one way that we found to do that was um, with music. We found this cue by Francis Lay for the, the montage where Lexi says, I feel like I've lived most of my life in my imagination. And it's really her being vulnerable with the audience for the first time. And we're hearing about her nerves putting on this play and like how she feels like an outsider and I put in this French New Wave cue and I played it for Julio and he 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 loved it. He, I told him, I was like, I don't know if this works. I like it, but I have some alts. And he's like, no, 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 that's really good. And I think we should do the whole episode in that style. So then, you know, it became the deep dive on Spotify, finding all of these cues, finding places to put them in. And then once we did that, that was really what set it apart was knowing, okay, this is kind of the sonic template for how Lexi envisions her life. This is what she feels, you know, this is the music that plays in her head when she's um, when she's the main character. And then through that, we found the overture, which, you know, wasn't scripted. And I think also, as we were putting that episode together and finding that we really needed to root ourselves in Lexi's point of view, Julio talked to Sam and they were still shooting while we were assembling. And um, Julio talked to Sam and, and I think he mentioned to Sam that we might need something of Lexi backstage being nervous. And they shot that, the opening shot of that episode is her in the dressing room. It fades up from black, pans around her face. She takes a deep breath. And then we hear someone come in and say, Lexi, they're ready for you. And then we go into the overture. And it was just, just that little moment of rooting with our character before the episode starts helped so much to just prepare the audience for where we were going to take them, you know, to sort of establish that trust early on. Like, this is not going to be a normal episode, but bear with us. It's so interesting that that came afterwards during the assembly, because you're right, that's such a, like, key into that entire episode, the way that you're with her so close. And then I do, I love the nervousness, but I also love that the grin that she breaks out in, you know, that that is her moment. And it's like, it's so her character, like there's that sweetness to her character and, you know, the nervous excitement that she feels. Exactly. I mean, Lexi, Lexi is, she's really, she's so much different than most of the characters on that show. She's really an introvert. She's really cautious, where I think a lot of the characters are maybe a little more impulsive. And so again, because she's so different, the episode had to feel so different. You know, if we had done a, an episode from a different character's point of view, we might not have had to differentiate it so much, but because it was Lexi and she is this like internal, thoughtful, kind of geek, like dorky theater kid, we had to make it feel like it was a dorky theater kid who was putting on this show. And so that's where, that's where all the choices came from was just exactly that, like understanding her character, who she is, what she would pick for her play. And um, it all just grew from there. Oh yeah, amazing. Bravura editing. You mentioned that you edit in Avid. I'm wondering how you go about staying up to date with kind of trends, new technologies, new things that the software can do. You know, is that something that you're trying to, you know, keep a finger on the pulse of? I probably should. I'm a little stuck in my ways. I do try to keep up with things and this is a lot of um, tutorials and talking with other editors. Again, TV, you're in rooms with other editors, so you can ask them questions. On side projects, I've done a few like tiny short films or just little things for friends. And I'll try to use Premiere for that just so I can teach it to myself. And I have friends that are very well versed in Premiere. So I'll ask them questions, but it's exactly one of those things. Like I never want to, I never want to miss out on a job because of the technology. So I do try to, to know what's going on, know that I can figure it out. If someone's working on, like I haven't worked on the new Avid 2020 yet. They had kind of a uh, interface overhaul and I haven't done it I've opened it and I've looked at it and it intimidated me <laughs> but I have friends that have worked on it and I've actually watched a few tutorials on how to manipulate it to work a little more like the old versions of Avid like I always say Avid is my first language because I can work in it quickly like that's the thing is I want my that's why I'm resistant to change or more sort of resistant to change I guess is because I know this version and I'm fast in this version and I want to stay fast so I can do my job quickly and efficiently, especially if someone's in the room with me. I don't want to be stumbling 
very much um, because then I think I imagine they'll look at me and be like, she has no idea what she's doing. Like all these error messages keep popping up. So if I'm going to experiment with new technology, I will do it in private because I don't want to be found out. (laughs) (laughs) I think, yeah, that's true of a lot of us with lots of situations. I'm wondering what keeps you creatively invested and committed, you know, on the days that aren't going to plan or, you know, you're getting a tough note. What do you remind yourself of that kind of keeps you loving what you do? Those days are often when I'm bogged down or like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't, I can't see it. I can't see like what this footage wants to be. But I just try to remind myself, like I've done this, I've been editing since like 2016. So I've been doing this enough now where I feel like I can trust myself. And I I actually, I have like a mental vault where I sort of keep compliments that people have given me. And those little moments are actually really great reminders. When I get a scene that I don't have any idea how it's supposed to be cut, I remind myself, okay, you've done this before. You've gotten sprawling documentary type footage. You've put it together and people have liked it, you know? And so keeping those compliments in mind, so whether it's something Julio said or Sam or, you know, a friend or something from a feedback screening, just anything that can remind me you've been in this position before where you were overwhelmed or scared or thought you didn't know what you were doing and you somehow did it. So just just put one foot in front of the other, just make some edits, just put some things in the timeline and you will find it. And that is very daunting. And I actually kind of have to give myself a verbal pep talk because it can be very overwhelming. So sometimes that's what those little walk around the neighborhoods are for of like, you can do this, you've got this, it's going to be okay, just start. And, you know, I have little mantras and like process is king is one of the things or like just trust the process, stay in the process is another one because like just sometimes making the edits, even if I feel like they aren't getting better, the more I do them, the sooner something will reveal itself to me. And then once I get that spark, then it's it's much easier to have a path. I would also recommend the physical vault. Um, if you ever get written feedback, take a screenshot. <laughs> I actually do that. I started keeping a folder on my desktop where if someone emails me something, I'll, I'll save it and just put it in there. Just, just honestly having those reminders of like, oh my God, I have done things that people have liked before and I'm not a total failure. Yeah, absolutely. Works a treat every time. (laughs) Is there something that maybe frustrates you about the film or television industry or something that you'd like to see kind of change happen, you know, quickly on? I mean, there are a lot of things that I find frustrating. I mean, we're in the middle of a writer's strike right now. I think a lot of people who put a lot of work in behind the camera that you don't necessarily see are often overlooked by studios and you know film is really a collaborative business and I think the people that you have on your team are are crucial for elevating material and you know bringing their own individual flavors to it and I think I think having diverse voices in cutting rooms is really wonderful and like enriches story like I find that I find that there are more women getting into editorial I mean edit- editorial started kind of as a woman's profession because women had nimble fingers and they thought of it like sewing. So a lot of the early editors were women and it's, um, you know, the film industry is very male dominated. So more women is always good. And I would love to have more women in cutting rooms. I find that I'm often the only woman on a show, but I think the mentorship that, um, that happens a lot with editorial is really wonderful. And I think editors are very generous because it's such a weird behind closed doors profession. It's really hard to break into. So I think a lot of, a lot of people I know have been very generous with their time and teaching people and bringing new people into the fold so that we can have more diverse voices, especially in editorial telling these stories and bringing their experience. And it's that same thing, like mining for nuance. Like I do that based on my own life experience, but someone else might find something different and they might elevate it in a different way. And so I think uplifting those talents is so important. So I would like more of that, more opportunity for people to break in and bring their voices to these projects. You mentioned that, um, you know, process is king and stay in the process. Are there any other kind of pieces of advice or mantras that you have that maybe have steered your course or stayed with you throughout your career? I think really like stay in the process is the big one for me. I just, it can be so, 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 so daunting to just get a mountain of footage and not know what to do with it. And it's so easy to be like, oh, I'm just going to go get a snack or, oh, I, you know, I'll cut a different scene today. But I think just telling myself like, stay in the process, stay in the process, stay in the process is for me the most helpful. 
And finally, is there a film or TV show by a women director that you would like to recommend today? I would like to recommend Fresh by Mimi Cave. I think it's a really wonderful film. I found it, I found it just really inspiring. You know, I believe it's her first feature and I think she's incredibly talented. And I think that movie, it's such a fun movie at its core. I think it does tone really well where it's very scary. It's very fun. There's a dance number. There's, you know, revenge. Like I I remember watching it and just being kind of on the edge of my seat, not knowing where it was going to go. I was so inspired by the swings that it took. Like it really took chances. And I think, especially these days, I'm really responding to directors who try something, try something new, don't go for the predictable storytelling. And I just, I fresh just was so enjoyable to me i thought the performances were great i thought the storytelling was great i thought the pace was wonderful and uh it was just a really enjoyable viewing experience and i don't feel like it i don't feel like enough people have seen it i think it's terrific and i'm so excited to see what she does next yeah great shout out and great use of music as well i can see why you might have liked that (laughs) all right thank you so much for your time today thank you for your thoughtful editing and your thoughtful answers and for opening a window into your profession it's been a real treat to speak with you Thank you so much. Thank you for setting this up and thank you. Thank you for the wonderful questions. It was really it was really a pleasure. this episode of best girl grip if you liked what you heard please do rate review and subscribe spread the good word etc if you're interested in other conversations with editors check out my episodes with louise ford and maya mafioli in the meantime have a great week and i'll be back next friday with a brand new episode